In this episode of See, Hear, Speak podcast, I speak with Meg Roberts about her recent ASHA Leader article on the speech-language pathologist's critical role in early identification of autism. We also discuss the relationship between parent and child social skills and her love of clinical practice research and early intervention. I was so excited to talk with Meg in April, Autism Awareness Month. Per usual, we end our conversation with Meg describing her current most exciting project and her favorite children's books. Don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about Meg. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Oh, thank you, Meg, for joining the See, Hear, Speak podcast. I'll start by having you introduce yourself. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Megan Roberts, and I am an assistant professor um, in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department at Northwestern University. I also um, lead the Early Intervention Research Group, which is my program of research related to understanding um, how we can best support language development in the tiniest of humans uh, under age uh, three years of age. Oh, those are some of my favorite humans. I love the tiny people. I oh, know, me too. They're fantastic. They're my faves. Um, so recently you wrote, uh, this month actually, April 2019, an ASHA Leader article on SLPs seeing the signs of autism spectrum disorder. For the more novice listeners here on the podcast, will you first just explain how a child receives an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis? What are some of the characteristics you look for? Who often gives that diagnosis? When are children most likely to receive the diagnosis? And just any other helpful information that can set the listeners up with some background knowledge for our discussion today. Happy to. I wish there was a more systematic process um, to this, but I will say a lot of this varies from state to state. I can speak to what uh, the current process is in Illinois and kind of general principles, but um, individual providers should really understand their own state's regulations um, in terms of like who and who can and cannot diagnose autism. Unfortunately, that is more state by state. And so in general, we'll, we'll talk about the gold standard to start with. So in general, um, the first kind of part of the diagnostic process is somebody recognizes a concern um, and then they get a referral to, a, in an ideal world, a multidisciplinary team. And so in that team would be generally, um, for the tiniest of humans, under three, I'll speak to that, because um, that's what the article was geared towards, is really targeting early intervention providers who have these relationships with families and may be seeing these families um, weekly. So we have, in early intervention, you would get a referral to um, what we call in Illinois a medical diagnostic team. And on that medical diagnostic team is usually a developmental and behavioral pediatrician, or it can be a general pediatrician, um, an OT, a speech pathologist, and in the state of Illinois, it's what we call a developmental therapist. But in other places, it would be um, just like when you think of general special ed. And so that's specific to Illinois. But in general, what we want for an autism evaluation is we want not just one person. We want to see all of the perspectives. And so a speech pathologist is often one of the members of the team. I will also say that um, it's also very common and ideal to have you know, people like social work and psychology as well. But in Illinois, the, the general model for at least under age three is a developmental and behavioral pediatrician, a speech pathologist, a developmental therapist, and maybe an occupational therapist. And so um, it's more of like this arena evaluation in which we're all doing different measures, but all trying to make sure that we're seeing the same things or maybe why we're seeing a function of, of a specific behavior. And what are the criteria then that that team would be looking for to say this child has an autism spectrum disorder? Right. Yes. Great question. So um, it's interesting because the DSM um, has changed over the years. And right now, the criteria for autism is really looking for um, kind of difficulties in two big buckets, one bucket being social communication and the other bucket being restricted and repetitive interests. And so those are kind of the two two um, areas in which we need to see symptoms and, of course, other things like, you know, was always occurring. There were always signs, for, you know, from from early childhood, and that in, 
has a significant impact on, you know, day-to-day functioning. And then if I'm correct, the new DSM set aside also, if you don't have the repetitive behavior and you have just the social pragmatics, you could have a social pragmatic communication disorder. Is that correct? Exactly right. You really have to have um, both. Okay. For autism spectrum disorder. For autism spectrum disorders. And so oftentimes we'll see a kiddo who um, is super like communicative socially, like pointing, showing. It's the kid I say that's like, he's like looking at the wheels of the train, but he's also being like, look, mom, look, I'm like perseverating on the wheels of the train. Like, yeah, you're, you're, you're definitely perseverating and you have this restricted interest, but you're also super socially communicative about your weird interest. Right. Um, And that kid does not have, um, autism, that kid has some weird interests. Right. You know, the flip side is you could have a kiddo that doesn't have any of those mm-hmm. restricted interests, but just has difficulty communicating socially. And that kid also doesn't have autism. That kiddo has a social pragmatic um, disorder. Oh, that's very helpful to know. Okay, that's great. So back to the ASHA leader article, your take home message there for SLPs and really any other early interventionists was that they should speak up and say something to parents if they see signs of autism in their clients. So why are SLPs, though, in particular, in a unique position to do that? I will try to make my response brief because I feel like I could talk like literally for hours about this and why I was compelled to write um, the ASHA um, leader article. I feel like if I were to pick the best, the, the number one reason, yes, we are specialists, um, but fundamentally the reason why I think EI providers in general are the best is because they have ongoing relationships with families and then have many opportunities to see the behaviors so that they can have this slow conversation as opposed to this very jarring one hour, two hour, three hour experience experience with with a diagnostic team. And so that's fundamentally the, the main reason. In addition, why I think early intervention speech pathologists are in a, in a unique position is because we understand social communication, right? So we are able to to notice those subtle differences of like, wow, you know, a kid doesn't have words, but he's pointing a ton. That kid is less likely to have autism as the kid who is not also doesn't have very many words, but, you know, but also, you know, taking the parent's hand to the refrigerator to to get milk as opposed to pointing or opening their fridge and pointing or vocalizing. And so those subtleties, I think, we're, 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 we're trained to observe those subtleties, but also in how do we talk about them with families. So we can talk about pre-linguistic communication. We can talk about intentional communication. We can talk about joint attention um, in ways that um, maybe other providers can. I, you know, reading your article reminded me of an experience I had as a CFY way, way, way back when. And that was an, uh, an evaluation that I was doing with my CFY supervisor. And it was of a child who was probably just close to two. And the parents brought him in because he was a late talker. So he didn't have any words. They were concerned. They brought him in and we were asking some basic questions. And one of them was about social communication. You know, how does he interact? And, the, and I remember the mother saying, Oh, he greets everyone who comes into our house. He's very social. And so, but then what I was observing was behavior that didn't appear very social to me when he was just, you know, working, you know, playing in the room and and interacting with the father was there too. So I asked very specifically, what do you mean by he greets everyone in the room? And she said, oh, every time someone comes in the room, he looks at their shoes. He's obsessed with shoes and he, you know, um, touches their shoes, and he just really acknowledges them through acknowledging their shoes. And right then, that was a big red flag because from the parent's point of view, they see that as social. But as speech pathologists, we have a different sense of what we mean by using social language um, as opposed to maybe an interaction point, which she saw as the shoes. So then at that point, we actually did, after the evaluation, my supervisor and I did mention that we had some concerns about his social language use and that we we did mention the word autism. But I remember at the time, it was a very stressful situation to mention autism. It felt, it, I remember telling my spouse later, it felt like we were giving a cancer diagnosis because the parents were blown away. They had very limited knowledge about autism. What they had, the knowledge they had was based on movies, you know, for instance, like Rain Man. And they, they had a very bleak view and it was just, it was hard to hear that word, have a lot of weight to the word. And so I wonder if that's also kind of what's 
maybe driving some of this anxiety for parents. Because what struck me in the article is that you said that you, from your own work, that more than 50% of caregivers said that no provider prior to receiving the autism diagnosis even mentioned autism, even though they were 100% of them were in early intervention. So they were interacting with early interventionists, likely speech pathologists, like you said, every week in a very personal way. And no one had mentioned that. So I can definitely see how from the speech pathologist view, it can be a little scary. But man, from that parent's view, I mean, it does seem like that there are some real downsides to not speaking up about the early signs of autism. 100%. I did um, a talk at ASHA in um, in Boston in the fall, and that's actually how the um, article came to be. Somebody in the audience was actually the editor of the ASHA Leader, and she was like, I think we should, you should write a, an article on this. Oh, but what was fascinating to me is that the majority of the audience, even with me kind of like guiding them and, and um, giving them specific strategies of how to bring up the conversation, the majority of the audience was still like, oh no, no, I don't think I can do this. And I loved how vulnerable they were, and hopefully at the end they felt a little bit more empowered, but it was striking to see that, I think there's several reasons why um, speech pathologists don't bring up the conversation. One of which is um, I think there's misinformation about what's our, in our scope of practice. It is in our scope of practice to diagnose autism, but, then this is a very big but, by bringing up concerns about signs of autism, that is not even diagnosing autism. Mm -hmm. Right. That is just starting the conversation. I think conflict is hard and bringing up bad news is, is hard, right, it, it, in any domain. I think about when your conversation about your, your CF brings up a great point, a cancer diagnosis. The difference between physicians and speech pathologists, however, is that I'm pretty sure that phys most physicians have received explicit instruction on how to deliver difficult news, right. and I'm willing to bet that we, there, that is not, it, I, I can speak it to Northwestern, I don't do a good job of that. Um, I do right. a better job of that now, mm -hmm. but I didn't, as a speech, as a master's student, get a ton of um, instruction on that or practice on that. And I, I could, I could be better as a professor for sure. Um, but I think that there's that's there's the gap in kind of our programming um, and development of of new clinicians. And then I think um, there is this also vulnerability of like, what if you're wrong and you know all of the things that come with that. And I think you have to be pretty you know, okay and confident and just really vulnerable and authentic with families. Like I say to them, like, I definitely could be wrong, but I don't ever want to say coulda, shoulda, woulda. Yes. So like, I just, I want more information for you, with you, because some of these pieces aren't making sense to me. And let's better to know than to not know. And I just, I'm, I'm, I just, I lay it all out there for them. And so they can kind of see exactly what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking it. And I can say things like, so here are the things that like don't make sense to me. Like he is really, he always makes eye contact and, you know, gives big hugs, but he still never points or he still never um, will look back and forth with your eye gaze and a point. And so it's kind of telling the parent, like, I see those things too that are making me say like, oh, that doesn't look like autism. But there's also these things that say, oh, these kind of do seem like autism. And so I think having these just really open conversations about like what you're thinking and why you're thinking it make parents um, just feel a little bit more part of the process and also just why you're, why you're doing it, why you're making that recommendation. And I think it can also be validating, even back to my own experience, even though it was a devastating discussion and one that they, they were surprised by, at the end of that discussion, they felt very validated because they've seen these signs too. They live with the child. They see these things. And then we can kind of label what they're seeing. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciated in your article, you provided a really concrete approach, right, to take. Um, SLPs could take it, early providers, and a way to discuss those early signs. Can you talk me through that approach? Sure. I think the over, overarching framework for the approach is that rather than telling parents what to do, your job is as a, as a guide to get them to make the decision on their own. The analogy I get is nobody likes to be told what to do, right? right. Like there's this thing, right? Contingent versus non-contingent help giving. Like if the idea is yours and you want to do it, you're more likely to be um, 
successful. And so somebody giving you the recommendation of, oh, you need to enroll your kid in EI, early intervention, or, oh, wow, I'm noticing concerns, my kid needs an intervention, that parent's response to early intervention is going to be different even if they both end up in early interventions. And so the parallel in autism is I want families to notice the signs on them, their own and not just be like, oh, yeah, Meg says he's doing that. And so because Meg says he's, he's you know, taking my hand all over the place, and now I'm going to, you know, go get the evaluation. I want them to be like, wow, yeah, he's not doing that. And maybe that's inf impacting his language. And so what I do is I, I start with like a lot of I wonders. So like, I wonder why he's doing that. And I start subtly without saying the word autism, pointing out signs of autism to start to get the parent to notice that. Because ultimately what I want the parent to ask me, which is my opening, is why do you think he's doing that? Because once the parent asks, like, why do you think he um, takes my hand to the refrigerator all the time? Or why do you think he lays on his side and, and looks at the wheel? At that point, I can say, you know what? I don't really know, but I'm, I'm a little, I'm wondering if that's going to impact, maybe that's impacting how he is learning language. You know, there are many reasons kids can have autism, or many reasons kids can have language mm -hmm. um, delays. One of those one of those reasons is is autism. Now, of course, I don't say that all in the same session. Usually, it's a few sessions of wondering, and then when the parent asks the question, then it's the opening. And then depending on how that parent responds is how how quickly I will recommend a medical, um, a diagnostic evaluation. And so, for example, if a parent is like, when I say the word autism, they're like, oh, no, 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 definitely not. It could not be it. I'm like, yeah, I can see why you might think that and then give some examples, but um, I, if it's okay with you, what I'm thinking is like, let's let's both kind of be detectives and like continue to look at these and maybe other behaviors to get to kind of the bottom of, you know, why it might be happening. Um, and so it's kind of this like slow dance, you know, over probably a week or two or a month or two um, because ultimately what we want, right, our end goal is for kids to not have a diagnosis of autism, that's not the goal, right? The goal is to get them in high quality intervention to maximize their outcomes. One of the ways you do that is, in the work I do, is, is by empowering parents to support their child. And if a parent isn't bought in, it's, it's, you're not likely going to get the same effects. And so I really want, it's very important for me to maintain that relationship with parents and really partner with them rather than like yanking them along, you know, just, you know, even if I'm right, it's not about being right. It's about them and, the, and their relationship with their child. That makes such good sense. These conversations are tough, but it sounds like once you use this approach and you have some success because the benefit is worth it. The benefit is getting the child and the parent the services they need to work together and have the parent become the advocate and, and be empowered and validated. And I imagine over time, these conversations can get a bit easier because you can be more comfortable with your vulnerability as a clinician. Um, and then even, you know, as you brought up, like even if a parent would say, oh, I don't think that's autism, that could be a nice opening to say, you know, there are a lot of really strong stereotypes about autism, but it's, it is on a spectrum. So there's mild to more severe and, and, and it's really about social communication. And even if it ends up that the child doesn't have autism, that's been a nice conversation to have with the parent in terms of education. So it, it sounds like it could be a really good approach. And I hope through this article and through the uh, talks you've given, like at ASHA and other talks that maybe that uh, SLPs will feel more empowered to do so. You know, it's interesting when you said that about also an opportunity to really kind of change the conversation about what autism is. It's been interesting because I tell this story. I was at an ADOS training, which is the Autism uh, uh, Diagnostic Observation Schedule Research Reliability Training, in which you go and you like practice in front of a, with a kid in front of an expert, and they give you feedback. And I'll never forget it. And I tell parents this story. There was this eight-year-old little dude, and he came in, and I'm doing like I think a Mod Three, and which is an older version mm -hmm. of the ADOS, and I'm having a conversation and all of a sudden at the end I'm like, are, are we sure he has autism? Because we had talked about like this, these dinosaurs for so long and I was just so enjoying how like delightful he was and yes, he had this like restricted interest and I didn't try to switch the topic because he just like, was so knowledgeable about yeah. all the dinosaurs and he was just this like delightful kid and he was, you know, in a, you know, mainstream regular, you know, second grade classroom and he'd gotten earlier intervention from the beginning and yeah, he still had autism but I really 
didn't, it wasn't the first thing I saw in him. And I think that's the thing that parents need to kind of hear is that it is a spectrum. And then that the best thing we can do, we don't have a crystal ball. The only thing we know with certainty is that early intervention is better. And the best way to get the most um, dosage and the best intervention customized for a kiddo is through a diagnosis. A diagnosis in many states of autism lets you access other therapy services that you are not eligible for if you don't have that that autism diagnosis. That's a perfect segue to the next question I wanted to ask you because I know one of your primary foci of research is more accurately identifying these autism spectrum disorders early so that parents and children can work together to get these early interventions that they need. So you note in a recent article about ASD, I'm going to use that for short for autism spectrum disorder, um, can be reliably identified when a child is two years old, but that most children don't receive the diagnosis till closer to four years old. So what explains this discrepancy between, you know, an accurate, uh, uh, the time we can accurately diagnose this to when they get the diagnosis? So I think there's a lot of factors. Um, I also think that we are um, also diagnosing ad- um, autism in adulthood um, more frequently now, so that could that could be one reason just statistically why the, why, yeah. why the difference. But when we think about barriers to early identification um, between like the, the two to four-year-olds, um, somebody has to identify a concern, right? And so, um, somebody has to kind of bring it up. And so I think um, that's one factor is that it's people aren't noticing, people might be noticing the signs, but they're not um, acting on them. It's interesting because most kids with autism, the good news is most kids with autism are enrolled in early intervention early, but they're not necessarily have an autism diagnosis. And often for that reason, they might be in EI, people are noticing um, a delay. We don't, it's not, diagnosis autism yet and the reason I for that often I can speak to Illinois and other areas is that the wait lists are often very long and so by the time you ident- you know you get enrolled in early intervention you want to see how the kid is doing then you decide oh then the, now the parent is on board to get the medical diagnosis now I've got them on the list but the list might be you know three to six months long and so you can kind of see how the process is really drawn out um, and then a huge bottleneck at least um, I can speak to Illinois is that for kids under three um, evaluations go through early intervention, but the only people, the majority, the only people that can diagnose autism in early intervention in Illinois are developmental and behavioral pediatricians. Mm-hmm. And there are so few of them that you can kind of see the, the bottleneck. And so we've, t- we've um, tried out a new um, paradigm in our Northwestern University Center for Audiology, Speech, Language, and Learning, where we have a general pediatrician who we have um, trained um, and worked with and because we're a multidisciplinary team. And so we now are trying to say, okay, what could general pediatricians do? Um, and so I think if we ha- can think flexibly about, you know, who can be the first point of diagnosis, I'm not talking about like, you know, continuity of care, like, you know, medication management, seizure, like all the other complexities of autism really do, I want to be clear, require, you know, a specialist. But I don't think that the the entry to services and the gateway for an autism diagnosis should um, go through developmental and behavioral pediatricians simply because it, it's it's not there's just not enough of them. It's a, a, a bandwidth issue. And it's such a I would imagine that's a, could be agonizing for parents, even though they're in early intervention, maybe getting some services that they're still in this purgatory of does my child have it? Do they do they not have it? And then that limits maybe their um, acceptance of the diagnosis and maybe even interfacing with support groups, parent support groups like ARC, for, I think ARC is one of them, correct? Like um, that they can get together and maybe talk to other parents and, and learn information. And I imagine that's kind of a, a head game for parents to have to wait that long. Wondering. Well, totally. and also, yeah. And also, you know, you might have a family that's like, oh, I don't know if I should do it. It might take them a few months to decide. Then they're finally like, you know what? I think it is. We're going to go. And now that I've like, I have this idea now I've got to wait and then like who knows what happens like in that in that period of like oh I don't know you know maybe I was wrong and it just it's not it's not the best process for parents for sure. So you've written about a screening approach to reduce wait time maybe it's the one you were just mentioning can you tell me more about that approach that kind of different cut points and 
initial screening, second screening? Yes. So I, if I were queen of the world, <laughs> I would love it if EI providers, particularly speech pathologists, could do easy screening measures as part of early intervention that could kind of streamline the process for families. And so one of the things, so I'll back up and say, um, when diagnosing autism, you have what we call level one screeners, which are like the general population, right? Everybody gets the MCHAT at their 18-month-old well baby visit, right? Um, and that's for just everybody. Nope, and they're not already diagnosed with anything. Um, obviously, we know some new data about the MCHAT being not, not super great. Um, but the second level of screening, a level two, is for kids that are already identified and so those kids, there are some measures, and that would be perfect for kids in early intervention, where you could do a level two screening. One of my, my I would say my favorite level two screening is um, the STAT, which is the screening tool, I think it is, the tool yeah. for autism in toddlers and young children. It's Wendy Stone's measure. Um, I love it because it's, um, um, it's they give you some activities to do, right? So you play with some toys, you roll a bowel back and forth, there's some imitation tasks, but rather than just like a checklist, it gives you kind of like, it's a standard set of materials, it's 20 minutes long, the kids don't generally hate it, you can kind of walk your the parents through like what you're seeing, so it's not just like, oh, I completed this checklist on my visit, it's really nice because you can use it as a tool of families. Um, but so then it made me wonder, so we've been using this, this the screening tool, the STAT in our diagnostic, and then also the ADOS, which is the gold standard, which takes longer to administer, it's 45 minutes. Um, and I just, we, I was just noticing that there are just some kids that you just know in the STAT, like you don't need to do the ADOS. I'm like, well, why are we, and then we're just, we're using these resources, and so you have these like, hail yes and hail no and then the gray in the middle totally. and so that's the test like I, I needed to have a more fancy academic name other than hell, <laughs> and hell, hell no and hell yes for the, for the academic paper but basically what we were trying to say is is there a point in which we are confident that the kid does not have autism at a point which the kid definitely has autism and then the middle where we're just not sure and so we with using um the skills of my very amazing psychometric um, expert colleagues at Feinberg Medical School, we applied some um, methods that have been used in other fields to say, okay, how could we maximize um, what we call the positive predictive value, negative predictive value. So basically those kids that really do have autism and don't have autism so that we could just basically diagnose them in, with a less intensive measure so that we could save the more, um, detailed medical diagnostics for those like middle ground kids. And so it was promising data. It looks, um, it was, in, it's interesting to, to know that that idea could work because what the tr traditional way of doing screening is you have one cut point, right? And in that one cut point, you have to say, okay, what is the likelihood that the kids are not gonna have it who do and who do have it that don't? And so you're constantly balancing, like who do I care more about, right? Do I care more about the kids that definitely have autism, that are more likely to have autism or less likely? And so with, when you have two cut points, you're, you're able to prioritize both. Right. And make different decisions. Well, I really like the idea. So let me think, so I like this idea. So queen of the world, how would this look? So you would, are you envisioning that a parent would take their child in to the pediatrician's office and at a certain period of time, maybe it's at age two or even a little before, this 20 minute screener would be given to all children or is there another pass even prior to that? Yeah, so I will preface this by saying this is not well developed in my brain quite yet. Yes, I understand. <laughs> I kind of work on all of like, so we need a lot of pieces, right? Yeah. I believe we need we, the stat is fantastic, um, but it doesn't map quite to the DSM-5. Um, restricted and repetitive behaviors aren't present in there, and so it can't be used. So the construct, uh, the concept of using multiple thresholds is needs to be applied to a measure. I think we need a new measure. I yeah. think we need a new easy measure for early intervention providers to use that will tell us the likelihood um, of having or not having autism. And then I think it should be open source. I'm queen of the world, right? Um, and then I want um, pediatricians there to be what we call these diagnostic access centers. So like 
not every pediatric practice has to have a pediatrician skilled in autism, but I would like, you know, there to be like maybe in every city there's a few, you know, or pediatricians that are in a working group that are, are care about development and they do like pop-ups. So like, you know, one month it's in this clinic, another month it's in that clinic and they use this, they use information from speech pathologists and they use a, a, an efficient measure and they're part of a team. I don't really want general pediatricians doing this on their own, quite honestly. Right. Um, but it's, and also, the, this process, the um, accelerated process, really depends on SLPs doing the work ahead of time about talking what it is, be, about what autism is, because you cannot go into a quick diagnostic and have the parent hear the word autism for the first time. It is not okay for them. They will not leave that diagnostic feeling okay. So this, the accelerated approach is like from the beginning, speech pathologists or early intervention providers need to be talking about autism. Parents need to be recognizing the signs or maybe we're doing a screening in the wild. We're talking about the results with the family. We're referring to the pediatrician. We're with the pediatrician in the diagnostic. We're doing the new measure, the efficient measure. And then we're referring only the cases that are in the gray to the developmental and behavioral pediatricians. But those wait lists are, long, are shorter too because we've already cut out the, yes. the hell no's and the hell yes's. Absolutely. And so um, that would be my, my grand plan. Let's hope NIH will someday fund me to do my, my grand plan. <laughs> Done. I think it sounds great because, I mean, it's really meeting all the goals that you want. You want accurate screening. You want a diagnosis quickly but you also want parents to not be blindsided. So you want a team approach and you want it to be quick enough. They're not blindsided, but, um, or, or you want quick enough to get early intervention services as they need them, but you don't want it to be so quick that you feel, they feel uncomfortable, but you have this nice approach. I think that kind of bends kids and then you can move forward and kind of get rid of those bottlenecks of those wait lists. I had, we had the same thing when I was a, a clinician uh, working at a children's hospital, we would have a, a year long wait. And it was just horrible uh, to see that happening. And it's like this, a half of a kid's life or a third oh, of a kid's life. Oh my yeah. gosh. It's just, it's really tough. And so it's, I think it's really, I like your approach a lot. And I love this idea just even uh, just to nerd out for a little bit uh, in terms of the stats portion of it. Mm -hmm. I like this idea of the two cut points to have better, um, you know, have more confidence that the ones you say have autism or are likely to have autism do. But then also this idea of if you have a different cut point, maybe at the lower end of symptoms, you can feel very confident that those kids don't have it. Oh. And then you have that middle zone, right? That middle zone that you're kind of like, we need more information. And, and this is the zone of which we would want to de delve a little deeper. Yeah. And speaking about those statistics, like in the study that we did, it was 50%, you know, so you might say, oh yeah, well, great. You could eliminate, you know, the 5%, 5%, but you still have 90% in the middle. We were able in this study to show that we could eliminate 50%. There was still 50% that were gray, but there was 50% that we were almost 100% confident weren't going to get a diagnosis of autism. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's really fantastic and a good point. It's not a small percentage. Fifty percent is a very large percentage. So and the thing I'm sorry. No, the go thing ahead. I'm the most surprised, like the most. Pr I'm I'm proud of a lot of things um, about this paper, but one of the things I'm the most proud about is that this was not funded by an NIH study. This was not funded by IES or NIH, like some of my other grants. This was a true clinician researcher partnership. This was using. Um, clinical data saying as a team, what kind of questions do you want to answer? How can we collect this data together? These were, these were, these were not research participants. These were patients coming in for a medical diagnostic in Illinois. And we were able to answer this question that has a direct impact on clinical practice using clinicians, using research, re, uh, researchers with quite honestly, you know, minimal, minimal resources, right? And I, I think that's just, I wish, I, I love that because I love partnering with clinicians and I love the fact that it was just this really great collaboration. That's really fantastic. That's the ideal because then you also see, um, because it came through an organic process, you also see that the outcome has such strong clinical relevance because it, it blossomed within that clinical partnership. 
Exactly. Oh, that's so much of the work we do involves parents who have a concern right up front. And so they have a level of education. Probably it's already there. Um, or maybe they're already in a system that gives them a bit of support to get their child some services. But there's many that are falling through the cracks with these approaches. Did you um, did you have something that was based on video? I'm remembering something like thin slices. Um, can yes. you tell me about that? So a fantastic postdoc in my lab, Lauren Hampton, um, we had read this paper where you could, it's borrowed from psychology, where basically if you take a, a thin slice, a little snippet, but you have more people rating a smaller amount versus one person rating a big, a, a larger amount. So the classic ADOS, 45 minutes long, one person rates it. Or could you use an approach where you could have two minutes, but 10 people rate it? Huh. Um, and so you're kind of comparing, like, what is the diagnostic accuracy using, like, a different approach? Um, and so what she did, what we did in the lab, but Lauren really spearheaded it, was she looked at, like, what is the um, max, what's the ideal duration and the ideal number of raters, right? And so it could be as little as, you know, two minutes with five raters. And so would it, it's not ready for prime time, but it's, it's really a, a beginning idea to say, okay, maybe in particularly places in like rural areas where you can't, where you don't have um, access, you know, or it's, or the wait list are even longer. Are there other kind of ways that you could increase the confidence in the diagnosis? And one of the ways is, you know, a, a, a shorter sample, but that multiple people, people rate it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that is, that's really interesting and ties in nicely to maybe the idea of just having, um, you know, videos sent in or kind of merging together different kind of alternative approaches to maybe net a broader range of people in a system that isn't so resource heavy. Exactly right. Well, that could be great. So we mentioned parents and I want to jump to another study you have. So you have a study in which you examine the influence of parents' pragmatic skills or their appropriate use of social language on their child's expressive language skills and then parents' use of language strategies. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that study? Sure, this is um, my fantastic, soon to be finished PhD student, Yael Stern. Um, I'll, I'll do a quick plug for her. She's mm -hmm. will be on the postdoc market and she's fantastic. Coming <laughs> um, soon. Um, yes. She is, um, so she wanted to look at, I'll, I'll step back in time. So I, was I believe in parent-mediated interventions. I believe that as speech pathologists, we should be teaching parents how to support their children's language development. And so I was working with this dad at the time, and I was just like, this guy loves his kid so much. He is so invested and engaged, but he is having a really, really hard time learning the strategies. And it made me think, wow, we so are so focused on the child and it's really about the dyad. And so I want to be very clear that I am not going back in time to refrigerator motherhood in which I'm blaming the parents, but I'm saying that we, and I'm a mother of four, I bring something to the table. Some things are harder or easier for me. Like I cannot, cannot, I am not a nice mother. When the TV is on, somebody is whining and someone is flying a, a helicopter. I, I, my pro, I am an introvert. My processing goes out the window. Like I just can't do it. So that's my, that's something that influences like my ability to implement whatever you know I want to in that moment. And so when we we apply that to parents of kids with autism, there's a lot going on, and they bring something to the table. And so it may be easier for some parents to learn some strategies than others. And I'm not saying, oh no, we don't teach some parents to to implement strategies. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that some strategies may be easier for some parents. And wouldn't it be nice if we customized what strategies we use, not only for the child but for the kid? And so this study that you speak of was the kind of the pilot work for this R01 clinical trial that I'm currently running, um, funded by NIDCD, in which we're looking at this very issue, which is on the continuum, we have two, two buckets of strategies that general buckets for kids with autism, right? We have more the directed, um, you know, adult-driven strategies, and then we have these more naturalistic responsive strategies. And those are kind of the two main frameworks. And it's, there's evidence supporting both. But what if one, what if certain parents do better learning one set of strategies than the other? It would be then uh, beneficial for the child 
if equal, if both work equally for the child, wouldn't it be better for clinicians to base what we choose to do with the, what we teach the parent based on the parent? And so that's the purpose of this grant, is to develop these like more adaptive interventions based not only on child characteristics, but on parent characteristics. Oh, I love that because we often think about the question, what works for whom? Uh, but exactly. it's all, it, but that who, what works for who child. is typically the child. I love this because yeah. it's the parent. My husband and I, uh, we're just talking about this recently. We have three children about how, um, duh, we bring ourselves to the parenting situation. It's not all about the kid <laughs> and just yeah. the same exact things. Like when it's hectic or when things are going on or just our biases or our ability levels come to the table. So I love this because it sounds like you're asking what works for whom in both cases, the child and the parent. And then how does that synergy occur? I, that's, that's really helpful really important. So what did you find in that research? Well, you'll have to have me back a different time because in the land of clinical trials, you are not allowed to look at any data <laughs> until you, your last participant is, is, is done. And so we are entering our last year, so we have about nine months left. What not to do when you um, are trying to make tenure? Do a clinical trial in which you can publish nothing <laughs> until the end of the study. Um, but uh, hopefully coming soon will be the results, um, re results of, this, of this study. Oh, I wish I could tell you more. Well, okay, so that is hard, and we will definitely have you back to talk about it once you have that work. But is there anything you tell us about even this study that Yael did that could give us some insights to possibly the clinical trial? Absolutely. So what we did find, the preliminary data suggested that um, – strategies that require a parent to basically put yourselves in the shoes of the child and respond the way they would. So for example, when in the SLP world, think of an expansions, for example. And so the kid says, um, meh, and is pointing to the milk. Often parents might say, you want the milk? But as speech pathologists, we would want the parent to say milk, right? Because we would want the, we want the parent to model what we'd want the kid to say. Mm -hmm. And so that ability to perspective take um, in the moment to put yourselves in the child's shoes, that is harder for some parents. Whereas opposed to prompting where you're setting up the environment, you're giving the milk and the juice, um, that is easier for some parents. And so um, off some parents of kids with autism have um, just different learning styles and it's easier. Um, so parents that, that have um, kind of these different patterns and how they speak um, have a harder time with, for example, those responsive strategies. This makes me think too about uh, us as professors teaching clinicians that possibly the work you're doing might be helpful for clinicians too, because clinicians may also have difficulty taking that perspective and giving them ways to do it or having kind of what they bring to the table in that dyad is important. And so it could be, I think this has broad applicability, not just in autism research, but in language intervention period. No, I think you bring up the point, if I were queen of the world and I could give everybody a superpower, I think I could solve a lot of the world's problems, not just in speech pathology. I would give everybody the ability to like put yourselves in someone else's oh. shoes, right? Like the world's problems yes. solved. Oh, absolutely. Like, oh, it's and, not a cliche when you say like walk a, a bit a mile in someone else's shoes. It is not a cliche. It is so true. Totally. And so yes. if we could give parents that ability with their child or the therapist's ability with the parent, like before we make judgments about a parenting, like let's think about how hard life must be sometimes, right? And that, you know, we're all just doing the best we can, right? And every parent cares deeply for their for their children. And so I think if we could all do that all the time, it would it would just help help everyone. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And you bring up also this, everyone wants to do good. And I have several friends that are social psychologists. And of course, in social psychology, it's all about the context. So who you are is ultimately driven or your performance, whatever that means, is driven by the context. So for instance, I mean, you mentioned the parenting context that it's noisy and someone's doing the helicopter, the TV's on, blah, blah. Yeah. that might not be your best parenting mode context, right? Versus a exactly. different context where you're able to just bring your best self or do what you really want. And so it seems to me you're creating, you're tying even in social psychology where you're bringing a context that can uh, create a better uh, interaction between the child and the parent. And I think, you know, 
that idea of context ties into the theory of mind that you're mentioning and empathy. It's, I, I really look forward to the results. Yeah, I hope it'll be interesting. So oftentimes you kind of have, like when I do a traditional clinical trial, I sort of have a you know hypothesis about, and I do have a hypothesis here about what types of styles will be better with what types of strategies, but it's real. I'm very interested because I could be wrong. We did some, um, uh, uh, there was an undergrad thesis who looked at, um, it's called the broad autism phenotype, and it's, so it's subclinical characteristics of autism that parents demonstrate. So it's not full manifestation, like right. doesn't impact life, but it's just these like subclinical, you know, like I took the test too, I flag on rigid. Um, and, you know, it's, but it, what was interesting was that um, she was looking at like resilience and self-efficacy mm -hmm. and um, in relation and how the broad autism phenotype influences it and this was just like an undergrad thesis but I was thinking I had one idea in my brain about like what the results would show but it actually turned out that um, parents who were could identify more with their child and had more of the subclinical um, characteristics actually had higher self-efficacy higher resilience because they just um, I think were more confident in in understanding their child it was very interesting because I was like oh well maybe if they have difficulty um, but it was it was actually the reverse, um, and so it was really interesting. And so I like I could I liked that finding because it it shifted my own um, mm -hmm. assumptions mm -hmm. and made me think, oh, this is this is a really interesting point about how we might think that like difficulties in one difficulties in implementing a strategy um, may be a negative, but it could be a positive in these other ways. Um, and so thinking oh. about just the whole parent has been really fun. And I just, the parents in our study are awesome, and I just, I've loved every every single one of them and what they bring and how excited they are to participate in science and just their willingness to, you know, complete all the forms and yeah. oh, yes. love to all the sessions, and we've got, just got the best parents here in, in Chicago. That's fantastic. So, yeah, let me think about this. So, one thing I always say, too, is everything's on a continuum now, right? So, everything is on a continuum. So, even thinking about the characteristics of autism, as you mentioned, so just to paraphrase, what I think I hear you saying is that if you have a parent, so, okay, with the idea, everything's on a continuum, that parents can take, you know, you can administer something that gives them an idea or gives you an idea of where they are on a continuum with characteristics that are more likely to be associated with autism. So let's say rigidity or maybe even difficulty perspective taking, right? Sure. So maybe you have a parent who has difficulty perspective taking that might manifest in the dyad as trouble, maybe doing a certain language strategy that you mentioned, like with milk. But on the other hand, the fact that the parent has a similar characteristic to their child may add resilience because that parent can maybe empathize in a different way. Right. I got this. Yeah, yeah, I know this. I'm like this. Like, we got this kid. Like, don't worry. Yeah, you're rigid. Yeah. Yeah, I'm rigid. Yeah, I'm rigid. I navigate yeah. it, and you're going to navigate totally. it, and I'm going to help you because and we're in this together. Oh, exactly. Like a match in characteristic. That is really fascinating. That That's it really was, cool. It was cool to see. And it was, uh, yeah, it was really, it was, it was cool to see. Oh, that's, that's really awesome. Well, you mentioned that you are passionate about clinical uh, practice research. I am also passionate about clin clinical practice research and implementation science. Um, and you recently conducted a study thinking about the amount of research published by ASHA journals that really counts as clinical practice. So tell me about that paper. What counts as clinical practice research? Okay, so what we did, so I, I'll, I'll tell what, 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 why this paper came to be. I, a few years ago, wrote a paper and it was published in pediatrics. And that's like the creme de la creme of like pediatric journals, like juicy impact factor. Mm -hmm. Like I was so proud of it. And fancy. I think like, <laughs> fancy, you know, right. like, but here's the bottom line. Four people read it. Like, right. and I know people read it. Nobody read it. And it was just yeah. like, I know I'm doing the hoops. I'm on the tenure. I'm doing the, the things, the mm -hmm. publishing in the fancy journals. I'm doing all the things. And then there was this discussion on an ASHA community board about coaching of parents. And it was a group of people being like, I can't imagine coach, like all they basically just basically saying it's too hard. I don't want to do it. Yeah. And then I wrote a little blurb about it just in like regular language. Yeah. And I used some data to support it. And 
it went everywhere and lots of people read it and and it made me realize that I'm not sure how clinicians I, I would I'm interested in how clinicians make decisions about what uh, interventions and what strategies they use um, but then ultimately what we hear a lot of is that they pick up an ASHA journal and they flip through it and there's just not a ton of stuff they can use and yes my fancy smancy was in pediatrics which unfortunately speech pathologists can't read right because they don't have access and so the the journals that speech pathologists have access to are the ASHA journals those are free so we chose to focus and say okay I want I want ultimately I'm queen of the world in this in this podcast and I want all kids to have very good outcomes the way to get good outcomes is to get good intervention and to have speech pathologists that are using evidence-based practices that's my those are my beliefs and one of the ways of implementing that is to know what works and the current evidence and to keep current but it's also hard as a speech pathologist practicing for years to also know I'm so tired of hearing like all these things don't work but not having anything that does work and so it's too hard well that doesn't work you know or a motor doesn't work facilitated communication doesn't work but not so we know that doesn't work, but we don't have we don't know that does work, and so it caught, it made us think, okay. And then I was on this committee with ASHA, um, this CRISP committee, uh, with Howard Goldstein, and we started to try to develop a metric for how could we, how could authors answer a series of questions that could get at the extent to which um, their research is clinical practice research, and so we. Um, designed some questions and we looked at the last 10 I think actually 11 years of all the ASHA journals only in speech pathology so we didn't look at AJA um, American Journal of Audiology right and um, yes. we didn't look at the, the uh, hearing section of JSLHR and we basically every article um, we we looked at it and we said is there data is it about you know X Y and Z and so for it to be clinical practice research it needed to be so the basic premise is that a clinician needed to be able to pick it up and be able to use it immediately, right? And so there's a lot of clinically useful information and research. So for example, um, there might be a correlational study that shows that, um, you know, kids, um, kids with autism are, you know, if you have one child with autism, you have a 25% chance of having another kid with autism. So that's, that's, that's a very useful, that's clinically useful, but it's not clinical practice research because, yes, it helps you counsel families, but it's not, you know, this algorithm that says, okay, if you give this test, this kid will have autism, this kid won't, right? And so clinical practice research is really about specific tools and strategies that you can use in clinical practice. And so there were basically three big buckets, assessment, um, intervention, and then kind of implementation. And so what we found was that, unfortunately, over time, there hasn't been an increase in the amount of clinical practice research, so it's about a quarter of what you read, so one in, you know, four articles. Um, and then the problem, though, with that is then it's, we looked at it by domain, and so in any, you know, you might think, oh, one in four is not bad, but then you start to think about, well, I'm a fluency expert, or I'm an EI, or I do dyslexia, or I do swallowing, then you're like, you're just cutting the pie even um, into even more tiny pieces. And so, Basically, what we found is that there hasn't been a there's been a pretty flat rate um, of clinical practice research in ASHA journals, and we didn't we don't know why. Like that was not the purpose of the study; it was descriptive, to just to say you know what's going on, um, and then kind of the next steps and what we sort of talked about in the discussion was why we think this might be the case and what we can kind of do in the future to help increase the amount of clinical practice research. So what what are yeah what are the barriers? in your mind, and I can speak to this as well, but what are the barriers and then what do you think we can do to increase it? I think clinical practice research is really freaking hard to do. I think it is hard and it is not sexy at all and we aren't there aren't that many people doing it. Um, it's hard to get it published because when you have not that many people doing it, you have not that many people reviewing it and chances are the people that are doing it are your friends and in conflict with you and so you have non-clinician scientists reading grants and non-clinician scientists reading papers and there's also not many of us and also there's this you know advice that people give junior faculty about 
that it's hard and too hard and you should do this other, you know, other work. And so from the PhD side, I think it's hard work to do. From the part I'm excited about is why aren't clinicians doing some science, right? So like there's this expectation in medicine, you know, for, for um, MDs. To, to be doing science and contributing to science, but there's not that same expectation in, for speech pathologists. And so I think, of course, PhDs can definitely, you know, be better, do better. But I also think as a field, practicing clinicians need to take, you know, you don't, you're frustrated with the lack of evidence-based practice. Okay, how can, yes, and I know caseloads are yucky, and I know you're, at least in my case, you're driving from, you know, family to family, and it's hard, but is there a way that we could advocate for better, you know, on the ground science happening as opposed to just this top down. So that's my my take. What what do you what's your where do you think we need to be Tiffany? Well, you know, I think that this is a constant discussion in my lab and in my thinking about research. I just was talking to a doctoral student and we have a finding we want to publish and you know, this is a pretty common discussion. Okay, let's publish it in National Journal because this is what clinicians need to know about this. But what about the impact factor? And oh, I'm going. Up, you know, I need. To, I'm going to go up for a student grant. And so, I. What about putting it in a larger impact, like you talked about pediatrics? Um, you know, larger psychology journals or what we look at, like Journal of Experimental Psychology. We know. So it's this kind of catch twenty two. We're always grappling with how do we get it to clinicians, but yet how do we also you know, meet kind of the standards that we're up against as well, like impact factors. So for the audience, impact factors are related to how many times an article, articles are cited in a specific journal and some journals have wider readership and they have higher impact factors. And then the impact factor determines how junior scientists are evaluated yearly, how, um, you know, how much, how they can get future grants. And um, it's, I always think about with these partnerships, it's all about currency, you know, what, and I don't mean just the green stuff. I mean, like, what is the currency that you have to have on your yearly evaluation? So, you know, as a faculty member, you know, your yearly evaluation, um, most places, even if you're not a research one has to do with what service have you done for the department, meaning what committees have you served on or how, how are your teaching evaluations looking? And then what have you disseminated? So what articles have you published? How have you written up your science? And then with the dissemination portion, especially in research intensive universities, it's about, you know, what is your dissemination rating and how many people are reading your article and what journals are you publishing in? And even though I think ASHA is making big gains in their impact factors, it is going to be limited just naturally by the fact that that's a smaller set of people reading compared to a larger set of like general psychology, even though it feels big, ASHA's big, but not compared to general psychology or pediatrics. Or pediatricians. I mean, exactly. pediatricians, we're talking about a gigantic set. Yeah. And so, and, and you mentioned, you know, SLPs doing research. So you're an SLP and you're in the schools and you want to do research, it's still about your currency because maybe your special ed director doesn't encourage that at all. So it's almost seen sometimes as a negative because maybe if you do that, then you're not, you know, uh, spending as much time on your clinical caseload or whatnot. And so I do think we have to think about how to change the system and how to change that currency, right? It's the currency and, you know, what's valued in a system. And so I think that some of the, those are, I think, some big barriers that we encounter. But I think what ASHA can do and funding agencies, I think, have a, a very strong role in, in this is that they can say, this is important. You know, if this is important, then the, the universities say, oh, okay, that's important. Great. So for me, for instance, um, you know, Institute of Education Sciences grants, it was really a revolution when they had these goal two grants. So goal two grants, are actual grants to fund you developing an intervention. In the past, if you wanted to do an intervention study, you'd have to have the intervention already developed and you'd have to have the some kind of research support on it. Well, that doesn't happen overnight. You have to have funding. So the fact that an institute like Department of Education said we're going to fund development was huge. And now NIDCD now has the mechanism of translational research grants. I think that's also huge because it's saying you know, we want to fund research that is uh, more implementation science, more translational. Um, and I think that's what needs to happen is it does come down to the infrastructure and the funding 
um, aspect. Uh, I think that's really critical. And I think the work you did, Meg, like on the CRISP committee is so critical because you're, you know, you're, you're trying to say what are the barriers and how can ASHA be a force for good? You know, how can ASHA help to create a system in which more clinical research is done? Right. And yeah, when we just need more, we just need more people doing it um, at all levels. I think the clinical doctorate is another interesting way, right? So mm -hmm. people that don't necessarily want to lead research labs um, and be in necessarily in traditional academia, but more want to be either a team scientist or even like a, a clinical assistant professor, or they want to um, even, I would even say, be in administration, but want to use data to guide decisions. I feel like Northwestern started a program two years ago, and I've been impressed with the types of students we're getting because they're all practicing clinicians, all wanting to dig deeper. And they take, I mean, they take two research courses with me, and they're having to do a systematic review as their project, and they have to do, like, this culminating project. And it's like giving them the skills, but also skills to do in their real life setting, right? So I think I think PhD is one avenue, but I also think post master's degree, we also need to think about how do we develop, you know, different leaders in our field um, and give them the tools to do so because our master's degree is really short, right? Um, yeah. And so it's too much, right? And it, and also they don't have the question. You don't have questions when you're a master's student. You're just trying to learn the skills. The questions come when you're out and practicing. You know, I'm sure all of your listeners have one question they yeah. wish they knew the answer to, but might not know how to solve it. Right. That's what I want to give practicing clinicians those tools to say. You know what? I'm going to try to figure this out. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's those partnerships. I think it really boils down to partnerships and to active listening. So you know, when I work with a school. The first thing I do is just listen. Like, what is the environment? What's your currency? What matters to you? What questions do you have that you want to answer? But then there's also bi-directionality of, okay, here's what I can offer. Here's what the currency is for me. And here's, um, you know, how we might work together. So it's this kind of shared, it becomes um, a different product. So it's like the school, you know, clinician may want something. I want something. Ultimately, when you come together, it forms a third kind of entity, that's the research project, that is, you know, uh, something that is a compromise, I think, between what's needed and is a back and forth between the researcher and clinician. And, and you're right that, you know, the SLPD could be a nice model for that. Yeah, it really could. Well, and what you say about partnerships is so important, and I think all funding agencies are recognizing that, yep. right? So IES and NIH all have these mechanisms for these partnerships because we realize that on average the 17 years it takes for something to get from, you know, research to practice is too long. And the best way to do that is to involve stakeholders from the beginning. Absolutely. And so, but that is a hard, that is, a, that is hard. You want to talk about some hard skills that no one ever taught me. I mean, that is flexibility and active listening and more flexibility and vulnerability. And, and it's fun. It's the most rewarding thing probably I do, but probably you do too. But it's, it's, it's not for, it's, it's, it's tough stuff. It is tough stuff. I agree. It's worth it, but it's tough. Well, let me think. So as we're wrapping up here, I do want to ask you two questions I always ask every guest. And the first one is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Well, I care a lot about autism. I'm we just started a, a UL1 grant, which is a clinical trial by NIDCD with Pam Hadley, um, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and Ann Kaiser at Vanderbilt. And it's the first UL1 ever funded by NIDCD in child language. So oh, we're super wow. proud about that. That's fantastic. Um, but it's with old kids. I mean, oh. these kids are 30 months old. And they go on to be four years old in the study. Oh I know gosh. you guys are all laughing at me. Wow. They're ancient. But I do pre-linguistic. <laughs> um, so what I'm excited is that Pam Hadley is my grammar tutor and I'm learning all about syntax and how we support that earlier in development and I've just she's stretched me so much um, to be a better like speech pathologist and I love learning new things and so it's a new intervention a blended intervention um, and so I'm excited to think about how we transition kids from kind of early word learners to making sentences and so I'm really excited about that about that new grant. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll definitely be watching for your findings and hearing more about it. That That's great. And then my last question is, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? 
Oh, that's a good one. So I have four kids, so we read at lots of different levels in my house. Um, I really love Not Quite Narwhal, where it's about this um, whale, you know, narwhal, not a unicorn or a, but I can be whatever I want to be. It's just got a really, it's a picture book. It's just got a really nice message about like how you define yourself um, and not to, how you have control over your, your own, your own identity, which is my, my current favorite in, in the household right now. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I have to say an awesome byproduct of doing this podcast is every time I talk to a guest, I always run out and buy that book for my kids. So we're getting a lot of variety in the house more. And so I'm excited to try that book. I had not heard of it. I will say the other book, we do a lot of audiobooks is, um, for the older kids is The Magical Misfits. Oh. Um, and it's just Neil Patrick Harris actually is the narrator and he does a really, you know, Doogie Hazard, and he does a really good job telling it. We, um, but what I love about it is it just, um, it just, it's this just really cool story of like resilience, but also I just love the fact that like they're the guy, the main characters are just like two guys and it's just they're two guys the guy has two dads and some and it's not a thing it's just like it tells me that we are just we're at a point and I love that that my kids are just like yeah he has two dads and it's not a late there's no label to it it's just like the main character has two dads and they go on this like amazing you know journey of magic and it was just um the kids always request to listen to it so magical misfits is my other plug okay, audiobook there we go and what ages do you think that's the best for well, so I we listen to it in those mm-hmm. the car, and I have a six and a, a six and a four year old that listen to it. The four year old is like poor four year old is gonna she she gets dragged along. I would say <laughs> six to eight is a little bit better. <laughs> okay, that's great. I have a wide yeah. gap because I have this. I have a two year old, four year old, and a thirteen year old. So I bet the thirteen year old might like it too. Maybe. Yeah. So the be. Land of Stories is another like Land of Stories is the like a series that every of my two olders, my eight and ten year old loved, mm-hmm. like were devoured like you know, 1,000 page books in like days. Uh, Land of Stories is another, an older kid book. Oh, this is fantastic. Okay. Well, Meg, thank you so much for chatting with us. And this is special too, because as you mentioned, it's Autism Awareness Month um, this month, April. So I'm excited to get this podcast out to the listeners and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I think the, we talk about dissemination and what you're doing is getting information and out in a way that people and they're driving to home visits or wherever they are can really um, learn um, from others. So thank you. Thanks so much. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.